I say, my dog has no nose. Your dog has no nose. How does he smell? Blooming awful. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin with Mishkin Law in Chicago. I'm joined again today by my co-host, Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings out in San Diego, and our producer, Dan Hummiston, as always. Rob, that's a great line to start off. Give us the background. Well, obviously, that's a joke that I think was told many times when uh, the Grateful Dead had moments where they didn't know what else to do themselves, and it became an ongoing joke that usually I think Phil Lesh is uh, the one that told it, or Bobby would tell it, but uh, but that was from June 6, 1970, from the Fillmore West, and it was uh, right after Garcia had broken a string in uh, in Doniz, they had about three minutes to kill before they started playing another tune, and somehow the old My Dog Has No Nose um, joke came out, but that one was well, you could actually hear the audience laughing, so it was well received that night. And groaning maybe even a little bit too, but you know, it, it, it's funny because having just come off the, uh, the two month uh, remembrance of the 50th anniversary of uh, Europe 72, quite a few times on that tour, Bobby took time to tell the story about the yellow dog or the, 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 the yellow, ugly dog, ugly yellow dog with no tail. That's a great one too. Although that one takes about four or five minutes for him to spit out. And depending on what frame of mind he's in, he doesn't always get through it cleanly. No. And I think this, you know, you get some recurring themes over the years and there aren't too many of them that they stuck with, but uh, they're the yellow dog and the, uh, my dog has no nose were, were two of the classics. And then obviously when they uh, would, Try to kill some time. Funicula, funicula came out quite a few times as well as a uh, good way. Or the uh, beer barrel polka. Yep. Yep. Well, good. That's a, a great way to, to, to kick off the uh, show we're going to be featuring today from 1970s, Fillmore West, June 6th. Um, that was a favorite time of year for the dead to be playing in San Francisco. They played there in 69. They played there in 70 on the 6th. But uh, we went with this one. Um, it's just a great, solid show all the way around. A lot of great tunes on it. And uh, uh, we'll have a lot of fun with it today. For uh, our listeners, uh, it's a special treat for you guys today. You just get Rob and me, uh, and you get to hear our musings on uh, all things marijuana, on uh, all things related to this dead show, and uh, a lot of other great things that are going on out there right now. What's uh, what's first on our list here today, Rob? Well, maybe we should start off by saying that it's actually refreshing once in a while, Larry, where it is just you and I, but you know, coming off of four or five weeks of just amazing guests like Lynette Shaw and Stacey Smith and David Ellison and... Uh, uh, and having Todd on last week, yeah, I mean, we've had some terrific, terrific guests. So, you know, shout out to all those guys for, for being, um, you know, guests on the show and taking your time out of your day to, to speak with us. That sometimes we forget that, you know, like we, we have a show just with, without guests once in a while. But I can tell you, it sure is fun when we have people that have such a wide breadth of, uh, of talent that, you know, come on and in history in the space. So it's been really, really fun the last, you know, four or five weeks for me personally. I've loved doing the show when we've had so many fun people to talk to. Yeah. I agree with that, Rob. And, you know, we've we've talked over the years about uh, the quality of guests that we can get in the door. And uh, although we think very highly of every guest we get in the door, uh, certainly some uh, wind up getting more interest uh, from our listeners than others. Uh, and, you know, for a long time, we were really focusing on the music side and coming up with some really great music guests. And it's nice to be able to really move back for a little while and focus on the marijuana side. Uh, we're in the process right now. I know we talked about before the show today of trying to line up three or four more people in the marijuana space who uh, have played a pretty big role or might otherwise be uh, identifiable to our listeners. And uh, we look forward to being able to bring them that as well while still finding time to work in uh, comments about our favorite music band. Yeah, no doubt. So, uh, so yeah, maybe today we kick it off with a little bit of, um, of, of cannabis news and did you see that um, Massachusetts is now reporting that since they started adult use in 2018, they've now crossed the $3 billion threshold in total sales, 
which, um, you know, is, is pretty meaningful for a state the size of Mass. I would say that that's very true. And, you know, it's it's great to see, Rob. We're, we're, we're at a point in this industry now where the states are succeeding. Now, as much as we like to try to avoid uh, talking about these kind of things on the show, it's not insignificant that in the last two days, two more of Donald Trump's uh, supposed targets have both been uh, vindicated. Uh, the, the Durham trial and then the other one where they were looking into – uh, something else that I just saw, right? But it's hard for people who follow that to believe that this is what's really happening. Well, guess what? There was a lot of people who told us that the legal marijuana market might not ever succeed, might not be good, would never succeed in Massachusetts. Massachusetts trotted out its program initially with some with some uh, hiccups, but now, uh, you know, Massachusetts has become another shining example of where this industry has arrived at in the United States. And, you know, I think it's a nice message to the naysayers out there that, you know, be quiet, you know, get back in your lane and uh, let those of us that know how to have a good time do our thing. You know, it's, it's not for a lack of trying, though, by some of the people to, to thwart the industry. If you, you know, watch Laura Ingram, uh, she was on the air, I think, yesterday talking about the fact that, you know, with the Uvalde shooters, you know, how come we're not looking into um, to mental health that's associated, associated with cannabis psychosis? And I looked at that going, this is absolutely nuts. You know, cannabis psychosis leading to violent behavior is, is something that, that we've never seen any correlation from from anywhere. And the thing that you know, I found disappointing about it is that a lot of people that were clowning her on social media were also clowning the cannabis industry in the process. And the prime example would be Michael Steele, who was formerly the head of the GOP, yep. you know, coming out, calling, calling her out on the nonsense, but saying like, you know, look, it's a bunch of lazy, um, you know, stoned, hungry, you know, munchy cannabis hippies that are, you know, doing this, like, come on, Laura, instead of saying like, you know, look, there's just zero chance there's a correlation there. And, you know, there's tens of millions of people that smoke cannabis. You know, and the likelihood of psychosis is far greater with alcohol or significant, you know, many other drugs as with cannabis. It should have just been like a straight, like, you know, draw a line in the sand and say that that's nonsense instead of like pushing on these like passe stereotypes in the process. But look, we know that's the case, right? Don't forget what uh, uh, now deceased Medal of Honor winner Rush Limbaugh said when Jerry Garcia died, right? You know, that's just one less, you know, you know, drug dealing hippie out there or whatever it was. And, you know, it, it's it's a it's an attitude that I've never really understood, you know, and maybe it goes back to Vietnam and the idea that the hippies were the war protesters and not supporting their country or something but, you know, for a guy who had gotten busted carrying huge amounts of, uh, you know, uh, Viagra and stuff across the board, you know, I just don't see the need to vilify uh, people who do this. And, and especially, you know, you have to wonder because, look, I have no idea about Laura Ingram, but we know that one night they caught Sean Hannity vaping when they cut back from commercial. And, you know, if, if you're going to tell me that none of those people at Fox News get high, I'm going to tell you, I don't believe you. Um, so, you know, that to me is the saddest part that if you can't, uh, acknowledge where this is at these days and you still have to try, but don't forget, I mean, and from Lori Ingraham's perspective, you know, her group, they're trying to find any excuse they can for who this shooter is in, uh, you know, Texas, other than, you know, just some, some disgruntled guy who, because of today's laws was able to get his hands on guns and go in and shoot down a bunch of kids. So right first he was a trans woman and the trans woman they found, started having trouble, you know, now she's going to blame it on, you know, cannabis psychosis. And, you know, you and I both know that some parent somewhere is going to stand up and object to it coming into their town. Well, Laura Ingraham says it causes cannabis psychosis. Right. Yeah. And to your point, though, with, with Rush Limbaugh, I mean, what, what I'll say in response is, you know, Rush Limbaugh said that in 1995. And, you know, that's only 22 years after, you know, the war on drugs began under Nixon, right, from 73 to, 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 uh, to 95. It's a 22-year period. We've now had 
you know, a longer period than that since he said that, you know, like Prop, Prop 215 wasn't even passed when Rush said that. So when Rush got away with saying that it was politically popular for him to like poke shots at, uh, you know, drug users or cannabis users. Nowadays, like, you know, it surprised me that someone like Laura Ingram or anyone else on, on you know, any network uh, would be able to take that pot shot simply because like they don't have the political support. They don't have the support of even like, you know, their own audience doesn't necessarily agree with that. I mean, if you don't think that, you know, you say Fox News, you know, hosts, I don't think anyone that watches the network, I mean, if you were to say split it down, you know, percentage of people that, um, that, that smoke on both sides of the aisle, I, I think you'd find that it's pretty evenly split. You know, like I, I know tons and tons of people that are GOP and tons of people that are, you know, Dems that are both cannabis users. So the idea of trying to like, you know, cast dispersions against a, a, a specific subset of the population, a pretty large subset of the population and attribute that to, to anything with zero evidence behind it and flash a Chiron that actually says, you know, like evidence suggests that, you know, that that's where I take issue with it. It's just, you know, as you said, it's pure deflection and it's political deflection. But that's Fox's MO every single night. I mean, that's what they do every single night. That's that's what their game is, right? They 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 grab a headline. Did you see the other night, Tucker? And I'm sorry, we're we're really drifting off topic here. But I, Tucker Carlson was upset because the, the 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 Korean pop singers were at the White House, and he started slamming that all night. So you know, the problem with this is it starts to cross over from politics, and the, and the war on the right becomes cultural, as we've seen, and you know how far they're going to try to take that culture war is anybody's best guess. But, you know, anybody out there who doesn't think that, you know, th these same people might not wake up one day and decide that marijuana is from the devil as well and we got to get rid of this. And all of a sudden, you know, you got Clarence Thomas writing an opinion and his wife bragging about it before it gets published. That could happen. That could happen. Well, lots of, uh, lots of scary things that have happened over the last couple of weeks. And again, you know, without trying to be political on this show, we really try not to be. Um, you know, I've got a lot of hope for better days ahead. Um, so let's, let's hope we see some, I, I agree with that, Robin. And here's what I would say about that when I'm, you know, looking at that time and with those kind of better days ahead, is there any place really better to go and do it than down in new Orleans? <laughs> That's a great question. I missed jazz fest this year. I'm sorry I did. I know there's actually a new jazz fest film coming out, but you know, New Orleans remains one of my favorite towns and, you know, for the grateful dead may, may have not been one of their favorite towns based on the bust, but you know, for a brief period there. They did cover the song New Orleans, and uh, I think we might have a clip of it. Uh, that's a great tune. And, you know, it, I, I desperately want to get Bob Weir on the show one day and I want to play that song and I want to say, Bob, that's amazing. Why did it, where did it go? <laughs> what a fun tune for them to play. You know, it just, it's, it's jumpy. It's got a great beat. Clearly they were having a good time with it. And, you know, it, it's one of those tunes that's been around for a long, long time. I, you know, I think for a lot of us, it really kind of came back into our conscience when John Fogarty released a live cut of it in 2014, on the, the Dr. John tribute show album that they all put together, uh, the celebration of, of Dr. John and his music. And that got a lot of playtime. 
Um, but it's really a, a song that dates back, I think, about 20 years before that. Uh, just the two guys who wrote it, Frank Guida and Joseph Royster. And I believe it was first recorded by U.S. Bonds sometime in the 1960s. Um, you know, and it was always out there. But it, it's a tune that's, that's been not always covered by rock bands. You know, sometimes uh, jazz bands or, or, you know, more contemporary music bands can play it. And, um, you know, the fact that the dead just j jump into it and grab it and, and run with it like that. And I, I think we saw when we were looking at this, that this was maybe only one of four times that the dead ever played it. And, you know, none since a long time ago. And it's a great tune. You know, it, it's just one of those things when you step in in one day that boom, their repertoire gets expanded by another song and you're like, love it. You know, the thing I love about that song is it's got such like good audience participation, like really similar to the way uh, the song Shout does, mm -hmm. you know, where it's, uh, you know, they can do the, the, the hey yeahs and then have it come right back. And that's one of those things that like, you know, the Grateful Dead didn't do too much of. They did a bit with like Not Fade Away. They did it, you know, a bit with, uh, you know, Garcia would do a Shining Star. But there wasn't too much of it where like, you know, the, they, it would be a call and repeat, you know, kind of situation. And they definitely had it. Ico. Yeah, Ico for sure. You know, but there's a. Very, very few where you know they they sing and they, I mean Fish has it with Wilson, right? You know, and has it like with with Harry Hood and you know a couple other times, but uh, you know, and um, like you know, widespread has it with Chili Water, you know, like certain things where it's you know the, the call and response, but uh, but you know, I, I love that. Like as as an audience member, you're stoked when they play a song like that because you actually get to like feel like you're part of the song, right? It gets you like you know, yep. even like stash just knowing, you know, like how to hit the claps, yeah, you know. Right, the clapping, right. At that crazy rhythm. I love that. I finally figured that one out. I was like, oh, this is the clapping song. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all sorts of different things where you just have to know kind of like, like you feel like you're in the know with the song if you get the, uh, the, the call and repeat, you know, done properly. And so I was really surprised to see this one go out of the repertoire because as you said, it's just such a fun song. It is a fun song, you know, and that's and that's that's what that's what always made them great was you just like you say funiculi funiculi funiculi, which you know the uh, the first time I heard that I think it's on Dick's Picks Three is the intro going into the show, and you know, and it's a melody that we've all heard in our lives a hundred times, but you know, you never necessarily know who to attribute it to or anything, but the Dead loved it, picked up on it, and boom, just you know would introduce it into the you know downtime every now and then when they were looking for a way to kill time when somebody's string broke or whatever, and you know, I have to say that, uh, you know, your standard bands like, you know, Journey didn't do that kind of thing very often, right? They just have a set list and boy, they stick with it and it's their top 20s. And if you like Journey, it's great. And if you don't, then don't go. But, you know, th this is just the, 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 the spontaneity that, you know, I think drove all of us to Grateful Dead shows. What are they going to do tonight that's going to be different? Agreed. And that's, you know, anytime a band has got that, and I don't care who the band is, that you know, if they can get me excited because I know that whatever I'm going to go see is different than what I saw last night, but completely different. Um, I just have a tremendous amount of respect for, for musicians that have that ability. And even some of my favorite like musicians out there, like, you know, Paul Simon, for instance, I've seen him a bunch of times, you know, his tour would be whatever he wanted to play on that tour. He might have two or three songs. They'd switch in and out like Jimmy Buffett, same thing. Like Jimmy, you know, for sure you're getting, I think there's 12 songs he plays every concert and uh, you know, he'll, he'll work in an additional, you know, eight or 10, but you know for sure he's you know doing the following, and you know you know very likely he's going to you know encore with one particular harbor, and he's going to say volcano to the end. Like there's all sorts of things where you you kind of come to expect it. Like the Allen Brothers would open almost every single show with uh with you know Melissa into into Blue Sky. You know it was almost guaranteed that you know Whipping Post would be the encore. So it's uh you know I, I get the formulaic side of of being a musician, 
but I much prefer sort of the jazz nature of, of bands that say, you know what, let's just switch it up and come out and play something different every night. Well, it, for sure. And, you know, even with formulaic nature, you know, I don't mean to be a killjoy when I say it, but certainly, you know, in the easily within the last five to seven years of the Grateful Dead, it got to the point where they were pretty formulaic and it wasn't uncommon for me to be sitting in a show and turn to somebody and say, you know what, out of space, they're going into the other one, into this, into that, into Sugar Mag with a, and boom, and they would play it. And they turned to me and say, how do you know? And I'm like, because I've gone to too many of these, you know, you, 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 or you were reading the set lists and tracking what they had been playing at the other shows. So you're like, oh, I know where they're going with this. And it, it, that, that, that uh, show we were talking about last week, the, the, the Las Vegas show with Steve Miller that night, three songs into the second set, one of my buddies there turned to me and laid out the, the entire rest of the show all the way through the encore. And he was spot on. And it was just amazing, you know, that we were like, how did he know they were going to play a... I hope that guy bet huge that night in Vegas. I, I hope he hit the tables harder than he's ever hit the tables before. It's like, just, I got it tonight. It's my night. But, you know, sometimes, similarly, you know, they were good at throwing you a curve like we talked about a few shows ago when they came out one night and opened the whole show with Scarlet Fire, um, you know, or they do things like that. But, um, but still, you know, this kind of stuff where just a, a tune out of nowhere is just – do you want to hear something crazy? I went back and checked my like Grateful Dead stats because I'm still such a nerd that I've, I still keep the book of all my stats. Almost half the Scarlet Fires I ever saw were not to open the second set, which blew me away. I figured there would like, there'd be one or two, but I saw three victim Scarlet Fires. I saw a touch Scarlet Fire. I saw um, a Scarlet Women, and I also saw something else. In the, remember I told you my first one was a, was a Scarlet Estimated, and then I saw, I guess, a Women Fire. I didn't realize that scene too, where they'd broken up the Scarlet and the fire. I thought I'd only seen the one where they broke it up, but there was multiple times where, uh, you know, six or seven shows where I saw something else like a, like an Ico Scarlet fire to open the second set, which blew me away. Cause I only think of Scarlet fire, like in my mind, I only picture it as a second set opener. Right. No, no, I, that, you know, and, and they, they definitely hit a period, I think in the late eighties and early nineties where they started to get clever with that, but it was always in, and, and it, it, like, I never saw them break up China writer like that. And I, I mean, I, I know that I don't want to say I ever saw him break up help slip Frank, but for a while help slip were retired and they would just play Frank Franklin's, yeah. but, um, yeah, feel like a stranger Franklin's, but yeah, or uh, half step Franklin's, you know, that kind of love that stuff. Um, and yeah, always great, but, uh, look, it, it's a fun tune. It's fun to play. And, uh, you know, if you were there that night, lucky to be in the crowd, you, you know, you went home and had a story to tell. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Other canvas news. Do you see the uh, the new stats coming out about uh, where kids are these days? Alcohol versus uh, versus canvas. Okay, so you know, I just have to say that this is like one of the best stories that I've seen in a long time. And, and let me just say for the record and give a shout out to our good buddy Mark Thomas, the uh, longtime owner of the uh, the classic uh, head shop in Chicago, the Alley. Um, and Mark uh, was kind enough to share a story with me the other day about how uh, social lubricant is no longer a liquid. Uh, it's in a magazine, uh, it's in the Bloomberg magazine actually, and it was written by Tiffany Carey. So we'll give a shout out to her too. Uh, but it's saying now that if people aged 18 to 24, 69% prefer marijuana to alcohol. Um, now, admittedly, that's a, a bit of a difficult statistic because some of that age group is under the age of 21 and therefore both too young for alcohol and marijuana. But since they're too young for both of them, you know, I think it still makes it a fair comparison. And this is amazing, right? This is just amazing. When I was growing up, there were definitely kids smoking marijuana, but everybody was drinking. That was the big thing to do. And, and today, there still are groups of kids, I know, that out there that, that prefer drinking to marijuana. 
but it's just wonderful to see that so many more people in that age group are turning to marijuana. And this, you know, let me just say this for the record, right? Nobody here and nobody in the industry and nobody anywhere is advocating underage use of marijuana. Um, but we also have to be, you know, uh, realistic enough to recognize that, that people under the age of 21 do choose toxicants of one kind or another, intoxicants of one kind or another. And, you know, I've always said to my boys, if you're going to choose, I'd prefer you choose marijuana. And I tell that to anyone who will listen, who doesn't get mad at me if their parents yell at me. Just look at the numbers every year of how many teenagers die from alcohol deaths, high school football parties, fraternity initiations, fraternity dances. Sometimes it's the guy, sometimes it's the girl who they pour too many shots down. Alcohol kills. Marijuana doesn't. It's kind of a simple equation for me. And if we accept the fact that even the kids younger than 21 are going to try something, I think it's great to see that they're moving to marijuana and away from alcohol. Yeah, I do too. I mean, again, I'll preface this as well by saying that I don't advocate for teen use of, of any intoxicant, but realistically, you know, kids go to college and kids go to college and there's going to be people that are, that are buying them things. And I think a lot of the reason that we went from an 18 year old drinking age to a 21 year old was not to make sure that, you know, 18 and 19 year olds weren't drinking was to make sure that 16 and 17 year olds weren't drinking. You know, it's like, look, if you're going to kind of fudge the numbers a little bit and say we expect there's going to be a certain amount of diversion away from the legal age to the you know the people younger, let's at least make sure it doesn't divert past a certain sort of threshold age. And I think that that age is college, right? So you know there's no way that you can think that there's any college kid in America right now unless you're going to like Liberty University that you know isn't out there drinking, right? Brigham Young. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Rick's College in, in Idaho. Uh, now now Brigham Young North. Yeah, any any of those. Uh, any of those kids, you know, in any other school is drinking and is probably using cannabis. So realistically, like, you know, the school knows about that. They're certainly not turning a blind eye. Everyone knows there's fraternity parties and, you know, house parties that are involving intoxicants. The police all know about it, but we have an acceptable level of, um, uh, of tolerance for that from law enforcement and from educators and say, we're okay with that. What we're not okay with is high school kids. Right. And I don't think that means like I'm saying like, all right, 19 year olds go out and break the law. What I'm saying is like, it, it, it's going to happen and we have to be realistic. It's going to happen. And your point of, if, you know, you're going to a, a college party, you know, do I think I'd rather see people, you know, uh, smoking a bowl or, you know, hitting a vape pen versus, you know, getting hammered. I, I definitely, definitely would. Well, not just even ODs. What about, I mean, every, we keep reading over the weekend, all of these holiday parties everywhere where people pull out guns and start shooting. And it always says liquor was being served. They were getting drunk on liquor. People don't get violent necessarily when they get high. People get violent when they get drunk. So again, if you're going to be in a fraternity house, you know, on a Saturday after a football game and half the kids in there went to the other school, you know, if everybody's getting stoned, I think, you know, it, it, it's a lot more peaceful than if everybody's getting drunk. That's just my spin on it. it reminds me of a widespread panic song called Greta, where it's, uh, you know, the rivalry between Georgia and Georgia Tech. And that ends up, the chorus is, uh, Greta's got a gun. She ain't no flower child. You know, so it's it's the uh, whole idea of, you know, you get those people in a room together and fights will break out. And that's usually alcohol related. It is, you know, and, and, and it just has to move to, to cannabis. But, you know, we can talk about that younger group, but think about this for a minute. This goes up to 24. So this includes kids ages 21 to 24. Now, when I turned 21, if you didn't immediately start going out to the bars and drinking, right, it was like if you didn't get a license the day you turned 16, everybody wondered what the hell was wrong with you. 21 to 24 were big, big drinking years in my life because I just happened to have easy access. I was legal and I could get to bars and I didn't have as much access to marijuana. There were no dispensaries or anything like that. Even at that age, you know, I still had to look around to find it from 
black market sources. And, and you know, today, while it's easier for people to get marijuana, I acknowledge, um, you know, it's it's painfully easy to get alcohol. And, you know, if you have people who are now of legal drinking age saying that, hey, now that I'm 21, that's great, but I'd rather smoke. That's huge for marijuana. And, you know, something that the alcohol industry is going to look at, which is why, as we've talked about plenty, we have all these uh, alcohol makers who are now looking for to, to come out with their own THC line, you know, line of THC infused beverages. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, we, we've obviously looked at this from the perspective of what this article said, but I can tell you even from, um, from the perspective of just anecdotally what I see, anyone that has been anywhere within like, you know, a uh, distance of, of seeing me in the last month has been offered cannabis products recently. Like I've just been like the candy man uh, around Carlsbad, California uh, in the last couple of weeks. I've been handing out edibles like crazy. And like, I usually bring a couple and offer them to like someone I know that likes edibles and everyone else will be at like within earshots. Like, Oh, can I get one of those too? So I was at a you know, birthday party the other night and there was eight of us for dinner. And I, you know, I, I wish I'd had twice as many because everyone's like, oh, I'll take one. And that's like everyone calling me afterwards. Like, dude, that edible is great. Uh, but same thing with, you know, I was at a, a, another birthday party the Friday before same thing. Um, you know, the workman that's installing the built-in cabinet in, in my living room right now, same thing. Like, just, it, it, the acceptance of, of people that are looking for other form factors and, and saying I'd, and telling me I'd much rather, you know, take an edible before bed than, uh, than have a, a cocktail or, you know, a drink to wind down the day. I'm amazed at how many people that I would have never expected. They're like, I'll take one of those. All day long. And, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because, I, you know, back in the day when, when I first moved into an apartment, then the game was when they came to hook up your cable, if you wanted the movie channels, you had to give them a six pack of beer, right? Now you can give those same guys a couple of joints and they're just as happy to set you up on all the movie channels. And if they like your weed, they'll make sure you stay on the movie channels and come by once every few weeks. Yeah. Note to everyone that's listening out there um, in states where you're legally allowed to give cannabis away is a great way to tip your bartender. It is a great way to tip the valet. It's a great way to do all sorts of things to keep you in the good graces of the people you interact with. Like I, I tip my mechanics. I tip everyone in weed these days. Just, you know, Hey man, here's, you know, here's some pre-rolls. Here's a, some, some edibles. Here's a vape pen, you know, it's just a great way. And oftentimes it's like, Hey, you know, try this one out and tell me what you think about it. And I, you know, pass it back on to, uh, you know, anecdotally the people that are the manufacturers of the product. So, it's super fun for me to kind of be able to just go out there and, you know, keep everyone happy by just passing out weed the same way I would with, you know, a bottle of wine or a, um, or, you know, uh, you know, bottle of scotch or something like that. So <clears throat> I'd much rather do it with, with cannabis. And, and by the way, cause of what the industry we're in, they kind of expect it, you know, like, Hey, aren't you the cannabis guy? Don't you do anything? I'm like, yeah, of course. Here, here you go. Uh, but, but years ago, before I started law school, 30 plus years ago, I was in New York for a wedding and my cousin was getting married out on Long Island and we had all gone into the city that day and I had stayed with some friends and I was taking a cab back out and, and, you know, halfway back out to Long Island, wherever we were staying, cab drivers talking to me, he goes, you have a good time in the city. Yeah. You're walking around. Yeah. He goes, you buy any weed? I was like, well, as a matter of fact, we did pick up a little uh, marijuana in Washington square park. He goes, you got any with you? I said, well, yeah, I do. As a matter of fact, he goes, you want to smoke it? <laughs> I, you know, I'd never smoked with a cab driver before, but the cab driver and I lit up, we passed the pipe back and forth through the little slot that you used to send, push the money through. And then when he dropped me off at the hotel, I, you know, I had a, a little baggie with like three or four more buds. I just stuck it through the slot. He's like, oh, dude, you're the best. You need a ride to the airport tomorrow. Just give me a call. <laughs> so Larry, I, I did that one time on my cabbie. I want to say in the uh, New Year's Eve of 1997, 98 in Salt Lake City, Utah. And our cabbie was like, hey man, like, you know, 
mind if I come in and smoke a joint with you guys? We're like, yeah, come on in. Well, January 1st, I go upstairs and my cabbie's still there. <laughs> and, and, and this is the same cabbie that as he's driving us home, there's a bottle of booze rolling around in the back. And I was like, hey, man, like I think one of your last rides left a bottle of booze bag. He's like, oh, no, that's mine. And I was like, yours? You're the, you're the designated driver. He's like, dude, I'm the cabbie. No one's looking for me. I was like, okay. That's awesome. <laughs> so, uh, so sometimes you have to be careful. Sometimes you have to be careful about offering the cabbie to, to come in. or They might still be there the next day. I understand how that could work. Absolutely. That's uh, that's always going to be a little bit tricky. But that, but you're right. That just is the beauty of it. And, and, and I think that what's fun for a lot of us, right, is that you know those of us who know marijuana has a currency can you know transact in that currency and it's always fun because you're kind of part of the inn you know the guy who's taking it you know and then the guy who's stuck waiting behind you because he wasn't smart enough to give somebody a joint is sitting there mumbling. i gave him tried to give him twenty dollars why wouldn't he take it well they don't want twenty dollars they want a joint there you go well speaking of, of fun things going back to that june 6 show yes uh there's another tune that those guys the boys didn't play all that often and it's one that usually would only happen again when a string broke or, or some other issue happened. And this actually is from that same stage banter, you know, portion that we were listening to earlier. But I don't know if you ever caught one. There was a couple in the late 80s, and I think one or two, even I think in 1990, but the uh, the Frozen Lager song. Do you ever catch one? I do not recall. I don't think I did. I, I know I've heard a, a couple on tape, I want to say from 88, that they uh, they played it. I want to say there's one from, uh, from Brendan Bernarina in Jersey. But uh, I, I know there's at least one or two from 85. But the, uh, the first one I can remember hearing, and I've got, you know, check stats, is this one from June 6, 1970. And again, it was, you know, coming out of the, uh, the Don't Ease Me In, where Jerry's like, hey, I broke a string. So Bobby decides to, to try to see if he can recreate a song that, you know, he remembered from his youth. So maybe, uh, maybe pull up a clip of that, because it is a fun one. Sure. But not like none today, if you A bale of hay. That's all I can remember. <laughs> I don't know what's funny, more funny about that. The song he's playing or his, you know, kind of offhanded comment at the end, right? It's like, well, that, that's all I can do, I guess. <laughs> it's absolutely terrible. But it's hilarious. Of course. That's the beauty of it. You know, I look, it, 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 I think it would shock any of us if he sat down and like played, you know, uh, you know a, a concert level acoustic guitar with great vocals. Bobby just dives right into it and, you know, doesn't remember if he knows the words and, you know, just plays a few, you know, chords that he knows and sings as far as he can go and then says, okay, I'm done. Yeah. That's, uh, it reminds me a lot of, you know, not quite as uh, as well done, but when Garcia remembered Whiskey in the Jar after years and decided to uh, to try it out when he was just messing around, and that ended up making it on to, uh, what was it, the Pure Jerry or whatever, the uh, So Many Roads? Yeah, what was that very first one they came out with, the So Many Roads, the five disc? It was one of the first box sets they came out with, and it was right at the very end. It was on the last, like, the second to last song on the last disc, and... Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was fun to hear Jerry play it. You know, I had, prior to that time, I didn't really have a recollection of hearing it, although now, you know, bands such as Aerosmith have even covered it. But Metallica. Metallica actually made it really big for a while, but the, this predated Metallica's release of it. So 
was actually pretty blown away after, you know, like I, I got to know the song and, and, and really started to love the song. And all of a sudden here comes Metallica, like playing whiskey in the jar with a much, much different style. But uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, much harder. Definitely much harder, but, <laughs> but still very cool. You know, like I, I can give them props for, uh, for for covering that tune the way they did. Oh, I agree. You know, if they want to go out and try and tackle a tune like that, you know, it's the same kind of thing. You know, it's just bringing a little element of, you know, surprise to their concerts. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, a staged act can be a good thing if you're going to see something specific. But I think that any band out there, you know, would be well served by somewhere in the middle of their show, just even for 10 minutes somewhere, you know, a little extended guitar. So anything, right. Just, you know, that's what music fans are always looking for. You know, we, we want, yes, it's nice to hear all the songs, but we want to make sure, you know, that we're Chicago and not Detroit. Yeah. Look, if, if, um, Perry Farrell and, uh, and Jane's addiction can cover ripple. And if sublime can cover Scarlet, then there's no reason Metallica can't cover whiskey in the jar that, you know, I love every time I, I, you know, I, I go back and I listen to that version of ripple. It's just, it's, it's just outstanding. Just it's, it's, it's 180 degrees from the tune and, and, and the, and the images that you get when you're hearing Jerry Garcia play it. And I just love it. It's just, they do such a great job with it. I, I couldn't stand it when it first came out because like I was so um, centric on the way that it had been drafted, you know, initially and the way it had been played. But over time, when I started, you know, realizing that musicians can do whatever the hell they want with a song, uh, it, 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 I've liked it more and more and more as I've gotten older, just because it is so far out of the comfort zone, such a different take on a, um, on such a great song. Yep. 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 I agree. So when we were talking with Todd McCormick last week, one of the things that came up, you know, was a discussion of the role that the MSOs and the large guys will play, um, you know, in the, in the marijuana industry eventually. And part of this, you know, has been, uh, you know, I think seen by people as, as possibly, you know, potentially maybe being a negative if, if it, if it crushes the ability for other, you know, smaller mom and pops to come up and if it gives us too much commonality in the market and, and, you know, stuff like that. But I guess, you know, there's a flip side to the MSOs too, right? Which is the, eventually they're large enough and, you know, they've got the financial means and potentially the political connections uh, to try and change some of the rules. And in fact, uh, a story that you and I were taking a look at was that they're now, uh, uh, the MSOs are, are mobilizing to go after the feds on 280E. They're trying, you know, we've certainly seen it before with smaller organizations, you know, Harborside tried for years and ultimately failed, you know, pretty miserably, but they're coming after it with a very new approach and it's being led by, uh, by the CEO of uh, Ascend, Abner Curtin, who has now circled up some other people and said, Hey, let's, you know, let's fight this thing. And by the way, if we actually win this thing, then every dollar we've paid into 280 is, uh, is refundable to us. So on behalf of the entire industry, I mean, there's a huge motivation for the, uh, the feds not to lose this one for fear that um, they're going to have to pay back hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that have been taken from the cannabis industry. Well, you know, I heard somebody say that and I, I mean, I guess that, it, I, you know, even as a lawyer, I'm a little bit confused about that, right? Because if you say, I mean, it, it, anytime you change the law, if you don't specify that it's just going to be now the law going forward or whatever it might be, I mean, you now the government, well, that's certainly an issue they're going to have to face. And, you know, uh, although I can't give you an exact total of the dollars that have been lost to 280 over the years, I'm sure you and I, you know, uh, could probably come up with some very large numbers that would probably be well within the ballpark. That would just be, you know, that would be amazing if that happened. And and it would be interesting, right? Because then you would have a court actually ruling and saying that 280E is, you know, is, is not lawful as opposed to what if they just declare, okay, marijuana is legal. So from this point forward, 280E no longer applies. Yeah. Look, I think it would be a smarter thing for the feds with, you know, to your, to your point on 280E, I mean, like the whole disgorgement of, um, of, of prior taxes paid, 
I think is a really difficult proposition because, you know, if you think about objectively, every cannabis company has raised their prices across the counter specifically to try to account for 280E, which means they've paid more 280E taxes as a result. You know, if they didn't have 280 then it would be significantly less expensive to the consumer, which would, you know, generate less in tax if, if that was the case. So it's already artificially inflated where people are trying to, you know, put profits up large enough to cover their 280E um, uh, exposure, right? So, you know, if I were the feds, even if I were losing this case, I'd certainly be saying, look, you know, maybe we'll pay back some of it, but, you know, either way we are entitled to something. And really it's the consumer that's lost throughout this entire process. Look, I I don't think it's all that likely that, that these guys succeed, but in this specific case, you know, the reason I find this one interesting is this isn't, you know, Ascend going at it by themselves. It's Ascend going out there and talking to all their other buddies that are well capitalized and saying, hey, if we each chip in a little bit of this, you know, ultimately it's to the benefit of all of us and ultimately it's to the benefit of the industry. So, you know, is it worth our while to, to, you know, create a fund that, you know, fights this thing with every single dollar and every single bit of uh, artillery we have? And, And it probably is. So, you know, you know, Abner's an interesting character. I don't know if you've ever run across him, but, you know, he's one of the bigger personalities in the space and not always right, but, you know, certainly very confident. Um, so, you know, we'll see. This might be a, a classic example of, um, you know, not always right, but never in doubt. Um, but we'll see how it goes. But, you know, I think we follow this one. But in the meantime, we're getting killed out there, man. The feds are murdering us. So it's, uh, it's just, you know, one after the other of just, you know, tax after tax after tax. And, you know, California's seen it. The MSOs have seen it. There's been studies done recently of who can actually, you know, handle their tax liability, who can handle their debt load. And it all comes back to 280E. So, you know, feds, don't murder us, man. <laughs> Very nice. And is that not the perfect lead-in, uh, Dan? Thank you for our next clip uh, from the show. Black and Bloody Meyer, that says it all, right? 280E, man. What a mess. It is the thing that holds down this industry more than anything else, and it's the thing that the feds are most reticent to let go of. You know, if, if there's one thing that lets the uh, the federal government tolerate this industry the way they have with this experiment, is behind closed doors, they're laughing at us, going, well, they're suckers enough to keep starting these businesses. We'll keep taking all their money. And they have for, for 20 years now. Yes, they have. And so, you know, you know, not not unlike Steve D'Angelo back in the day, right? When he stuck his finger out to the feds and said, come sue me. Um, you know, it's nice to see that uh, that this group of MSOs are, you know, taking advantage of their size and the money that they've made from, you know, consumers in the industry, you know, to go out and try and change laws that, you know, are potentially holding back the industry. So hats off to them. Um, but, you know, hats off to Jerry on Dire Wolf, too, right? What a great tune. What a great song in, in their repertoire forever. You know, it goes way back to the very beginning. And, uh, you know, they were still playing it occasionally all the way through to the end. Um, you know, and one of the things that I always found fascinating about it was I, I there's some very, very early versions of it where Bobby is singing the lyrics. 
Yeah, really early versions of it. But by 1970, it was it was pretty firmly in Garcia's camp. And you know, one of the things I love about this show, and I love about this Direwolf in particular, is you can hear Billy's drumming so cleanly. And you, can, it's, you know, he's playing on a really small set of drums. It's just like a jazz like trap setup that he's playing, but it's really really crisp. And you can hear the um, the tom tom and the snare really well throughout the entire show. So, uh, you know, and Garcia's playing you know, is obviously predating any of his um, Steve Irwin guitars. So, you know, it's that really twangy sound that he's got uh, on what I think is a Fender Stratocaster. And it's just, uh, it's really fun because it's a much different sound than, than you're used to. But, you know, some of the 1968, 69 shows were getting pretty far out there with distortion. The 1970s started bringing it back around to a much cleaner sound. And, uh, and that direwolf is, is kind of crisp note for note Garcia. I agree. And, and I like what you said about Kreutzmann and his, his drum kit, because look, there's no doubt by the time I started seeing them, you know, they were, they had the, the, the circle of drums over their head, you know, and then eventually the wall of drums behind them. And look, there's no denying the, 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 the unique benefits that, that both Bill and Mickey bring to the band, uh, and you know, how much fun their drum solos could be. Uh, especially if you know you were in the right frame of mind, and and just how really they could work their way into just about any part of a song at any time, and the and the band would love it. But you know, having said that, I would be lying if I if I didn't say that you know I really enjoyed that period of one drummer, and I really enjoyed it with a you know a much less uh, emphasis on drums. I mean, he's clearly playing the drums, and yes, we know that every time he, they were going to go into the other one, he'd have a two or three minute drum solo. Um, but you're right. It, it, it's very crisp, but there's not a lot of additional sound to it. He's just hitting, you know, the, the drums in front of him and the cymbals. And I just think it shows what an exceptionally talented drummer Bill Kreutzmann is just, you know, from a basic skills perspective. Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely agree. And sometimes, you know, like I'm, I'm not one of those people that needs to hear like Neil Peart every time. I'm, I'm just happy to hear like a Jack Dejanet that, uh, you know, it's going to play a very, very simple, you know, clean, perfect time. I and mean, I always think jazz uh, drummers had it rougher than, than anyone else um, just because they, uh, they were the ones that um, had so little to work with and had to get it so right. I think it's much harder to keep time on a slow song than on a fast song. You know, I think it's much harder to, to, to be an understated drummer than an overstated drummer. So, you know, I look at someone like a Stuart Copeland from the police and that's why I think Stuart is so good, you know, and, Billy, when he was just playing by himself, had a lot of that. You know, it was very much a uh, an understated role. And Charlie Watts too, for that matter, also had some really good shops like that. And, and yeah, no, it, it look it, it, just exceptional drummers, all of them. And uh, you know, again, not to slam Mickey and 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 anything like that, but this is just you know that period of time when Mickey was taking his time off to do whatever he needed to do up on his ranch. And, uh, you know, it, it gave Bill a, a very, you know, unique opportunity to really shine, especially as they, you know, made this transition into more traditional music and away from the, you know, kind of, you know, really uh, wild and crazy psych psychedelic stuff that we were getting in 68 and 69. For sure. So what else we got going on? There's a, there's a lot happening in the cannabis world this week. I mean, obviously we've seen, you know, new legalization movements. Uh, Texas is now moving uh, municipality by municipality to try to decriminalize. We're, we're seeing a bit of that. We're seeing, um, obviously, Rhode Island just, you know, passed uh, cannabis into law, as we talked about previously. But um, we're getting some, some new glimmers of hope, I think, coming out of North Carolina right now on the medicinal side. I don't know if you've been following that at all. Look, you know, yes. And, and, you know, North Carolina is a state that's been kicked around from time to time because North Carolina, you know, is certainly not unlike other southern states in that it is a southern state. And I think it, it has a lot of emphasis on that. But it's got a lot of great college campuses down there, you know, and 
I, I think that uh, people recognize, uh, maybe even more importantly, that marijuana doesn't have to be competition with tobacco. And that, uh, you know, maybe if you see it more as competition with alcohol or something. But look, either way, um, it's great to see a southern red state like North Carolina. And, and when I say red, again, it, it's not as red as some of the others, but predominantly any state that can give us uh, Madison Cawthorn is, has to be red. So, uh, but I think it's great. I would love to see uh, North Carolina get medical cannabis and hopefully soon thereafter, you know, get adult use. It would certainly make, uh, you know, going to a game in uh, Chapel Hill or uh, Durham a hell of a lot more fun. Yeah, that's definitely true. And one thing I'll say is that, you know, yeah, it's, it's still a relatively conservative state, but in the Senate in, in North Carolina, certainly, you know, in the state house is very conservative. This sailed through the committee hearing, you know, this sailed through on a voice vote in the rules and, uh, and operations committee. So, you know, it's actually going to a, a full floor vote in the Senate. But the fact it passed in a voice vote out of committee, I, I think kind of tells you everything that we expect to see going on to the Senate floor. So for this thing to fail, um, I'd be very, very surprised. But then the question is, you know, what happens if it passes? I mean, look at Virginia, where Virginia is, you know, sort of vacillated back and forth. And, you know, can you actually can you actually trust what the uh, what the passage of the law is going to be? I mean, look at South uh, Dakota with Christy Nome. Like, you know, it's like the, the, the will of the voter or the will of the, the legislature oftentimes is perverted by the people that have the ultimate say in rulemaking. So, you know, sometimes we're, we're overly excited about uh, about the change in law only to find out. I mean, Florida is another prime example of, of, you know, how it's been walked back. And it was walked back, obviously, to the um, to the benefit of, you know, the 17 or so groups that had licenses. But if you think of the way, you know, John Morgan crafted that that bill and crafted that law, it was meant to be a very, very expansive law in Florida. So, you know. I don't know if uh, I don't know if I always trust it. There's a little bit of lying and cheating going on with these guys. Well, I think that you're right about that, and it's uh, you know one of those situations where we'll find out if somebody's really willing to uh, you know uh, come out and, and be uh, straight with us. But once again, Rob, your timing is impeccable because uh, uh, as you suggest, uh, kind of creates a perfect lead-in. Um, to our final clip of the day, uh, which we'll spin here in a minute on our way out the door. Um, and then the, the tune that you picked for us is Next Time You See Me. Um, it's a great tune that Jerry sang from time to time and uh, unfortunately uh, not nearly often enough. It, it's a fun tune to have, right? Because it, it's basically telling somebody, screw you, you know, I tried to do things your way for so long and I'm not going to do it that way anymore. And that's what we've been talking about the marijuana industry today, right? That uh, we've reached a point where I think everybody's pushing ahead. The MSOs are saying screw 280E and we're getting a lot of pushback. States are voting for it. And I, and I think that we're seeing that, you know, that huge pushback. And, you know, you can easily say to somebody, you know, next time you come to Illinois, the next time you come to North Carolina, the next time you come anywhere, it ain't going to be the same. No doubt. No doubt. And the thing I love about, uh, about um, next time you see me is sort of the interplay between uh, Pig's harp and Garcia's guitar. And it's one of the purest forms of like real Garcia blues uh, from that era. And if you think about like how the band probably would have evolved if Pigpen had stayed alive, and you think about kind of the trajectory they were taking as a blues band, uh, Next Time You See Me, I think, is a really good representation of what we would have seen in, you know, 72, 73, 74, as they kind of were going through a, a quasi-Americana slash blues combination and away from the sort of the psychedelic side that the Grateful Dead were at. But, you know, people forget that, that Pig was, you know, well well before John Popper, you know, like when Dylan was, you know, a guy blowing a harp. Um, Pig was as good as anyone out there on the harp and uh, it was always a lot of fun to listen to. So, you know, as we're, as we're listening to it going out the door, you know, I picked a little bit that's the pure interplay between Garcia and Pig, you know, going back and forth with, you know, guitar licks and harp licks. 
But, um, but as usual, you know, a really fun episode and uh, looking forward to next week and looking forward to some guests we've got lined up for our audience here over the next couple of weeks. But until then, you know, have a great week, Larry. And uh, thanks to Dan Hummiston, our host, but Rob Hunt signing off until next week. Thank you, Rob. A pleasure as always. So, uh, Yes, to everyone, I'm not sure if I will be here next week. I'm going to be traveling. I'm going to find myself in the Grand Canyon uh, at the time of taping, so we'll see uh, what modern amenities exist on in that part of the world and whether I can join in. If not, I will be back a week later uh, and, as always, ready to dive in and discuss the uh, issues of the day as they were with marijuana and uh, Grateful Dead and all sorts of other good stuff. So to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. Thanks to Rob. Thanks to Dan. Have a great week or two. Be safe. Be careful. Enjoy your cannabis responsibly. And enjoy the Grateful Dead. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.